Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. Hello everyone, it's Shannon here with you on this last day of May to share an author interview and to discuss some great new books out this week. First things first, today I'm sharing an interview with the always fabulous Kathleen West. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that we have a lot of love here on Book Bistro for Kathleen West, and this interview is a discussion of her latest book, which is called Home or Away. So I hope you love it. She is always a treat to talk with. Um, I'm always very happy to hear that she is coming out with a new book and ready to chat about it. So let's get started with that interview. Well, first we'll do the housekeeping information, then that interview, and then I'll be back to chat with you about this week's new books. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am so happy to welcome Kathleen West back to the podcast. She is here to talk about her 2022 book, Home or Away, which is releasing in the U.S. on March 29th. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Shannon, thank you so much for having me. I love this podcast. Yay. So... As always, can we start out with a brief introduction to Homer Away? Sure. Homer Away is about two elite hockey players who were both on the cusp of making the U.S. Um, Olympic team in 2002. And one of them, Susie, makes the team and the other, Lee, does not. And then 20 years later, Lee wants to give her nine-year-old son a chance to be a great hockey player himself, and so rejoins the hockey world that she had left completely after that big disappointment of not making the team. And it's about all the secrets that come out and all of the drama that she thought she had put away forever. And there is lots of drama. <laughs> I hope so, yes. Yes, yes. Um, so this was, I felt like, a little bit of a shift. Um, for you in terms of kind of the the setting, you know, you kind of took us out of the school um, where, you know, a lot of our like minor dramas and are we there yet had kind of a big uh, school component. And here we don't see that as much. We turn to sports instead. 
And I was not like, I'm not a sports fan. So I was a little bit nervous to pick this up because I was like, oh, you know, what if it's so like full of, you know, hockey detail that I don't relate to it. You know, I don't like it. But fortunately, you your writing is just so engaging that even though hockey is not my thing, um, I picked this up and, and read it super quickly. Well, I really appreciate that, and I'm so glad to hear it. Um, I have a joke with my husband, Dan. He's one of my early readers always, and he was like, more hockey, please, more hockey. And I was like, Dan, I think you are the only person in the world that is asking for more hockey. <laughs> we actually um, took quite a bit of hockey out, but I I have always loved sports, and I really love sports as like a – um, a setting in which to deal with all of life's big emotions, you know, success and failure and um, competition and comparison. And um, I liked being an athlete myself, and I liked being a sports parent, too, although there are a lot of extremes. I have two teenage sons, and um, you, you see a lot of bad behavior when you're parenting your kids through sports. And then you also see a lot of great behavior and great sportsmanship sportsmanship. So I was excited to um, kind of go into that world. So I grew up um, in the like vocal competition circuit. And so I got to see all of the kind of stage moms, um, similar, I'm guessing, to what you would see in like, you know, acting, Um, you know, some people that were like super supportive and great. And then other ones that kind of go along with what you've just said about sports, you know, who go so far over the top in their need to, you know, make sure that their kid is is the best and the brightest. Yeah, I see a lot of that. And then also I was just kind of wondering when I decided to write this story and develop the story, like I'm a pretty intense person. I'm high energy, high anxiety, high competition, just kind of in my nature. And so I I really have to work to try to match my own children's level of enthusiasm and stuff. And I don't want to be one of those over the top moms. So I, I had fun thinking about like, what if, what would it be like if somebody like me, what if I had been an elite athlete and then I'm shepherding my child through the sport that I myself had excelled in? Like how much harder would it be to modulate those kind of um, instincts I have to, to, you know, go to like, go to the mattresses or win at all costs or anything like that. So I kind of had fun thinking about the legacy of excellence in families too, and how that might play out. And when I was researching the book, I actually read a book about, or an article about Arch Manning, who's like part of the Peyton Manning, Eli Manning dynasty of quarterbacks. And he's like a teenager. And I was like, what about the pressure on that kid? Like, you know, if you get injured or you don't um, you don't become an NFL player or whatever. Like, what would it be like to like ruin the family dynasty? So that right, was- you would feel so yeah. responsible for that. I would think. Yeah, and that's what I kind of thought about these kids that I write about in the book. They're nine years old, but they know their parents were on the U.S. national team. And in the case of one of the girls in the book, Georgie, like her mom is a two-time Olympic medalist. And so how do you even like play the sport <laughs> that that your parents were in? And, and what does success look like in that family? I was really interested in that. Well, and I think in the case of Lee, you know, she had had loved hockey so, so much. And then after this crushing disappointment had distanced herself from it completely. So what happens then when her son starts to love the sport and now it you know puts her back right 
in the middle, um, but sort of, you know, a generation removed from where she had been before. Yeah, there's a couple of questions there. Like one, I wondered what happens to all that energy? Because, you know, one minute Lee is 100 percent into hockey and and the best in the world and ready to to take on Salt Lake City with her U.S. teammates. And then in that meeting where she gets cut and you see that right at the beginning of the book. So it's not a spoiler or anything. Everything changes, like all that energy she had, all that competition she had, all of it, it just kind of, it's gone. And, but I thought like, where does she put that? Where, like, if you're somebody like that and you have this crushing defeat and you feel like you can't go back into the same arena, where does that go? So that was one thing I was interested in. And then I'm sure when her son Gus decides that he wants to be a hockey player, like she has some trepidation about that. I would think that she had trepidation and also excitement, like, oh, you know, could he be great at this? Um, or like, could he maybe like redeem or carry on in a way that I wasn't able to? And I don't think she would want to have that instinct, but it might be there too. Certainly at least, you know, kind of underneath the surface. Yeah. You could sort of understand, you know, her having some of those thoughts and then having to decide like what to do about those. Like, is that what she really wants or does she recognize you know, there could be some some difficulty if that were the case. Yeah, and I think she does recognize the difficulty. And in, I think she kind of wanted to shield him from the the potential of disappointment. And that could be a mistake also. Like, she doesn't want him to be able to battle, you know. Um, they move from Tampa, Florida, back into Minneapolis or suburb of Minneapolis where where hockey is more prominent in Minnesota hockey is everywhere. Like every suburb has its own team. Whereas in States like Florida, you have like a few elite teams where kids drive for miles and miles to be on them. So it's just a totally different scene. And she knows that. So she chooses to kind of come back and enter that scene. Um, and she must do it like with some hope for him, but also some worry about, about where it could go. So that actually leads very nicely into what I wanted to ask you. Um, which is how close is the kind of hockey culture in your book to what people are experiencing in Minnesota um, if, you know, hockey is the sport they love? I think it's really close. I, I mean, and it's not just hockey. I don't think I think, you know, I have students this year. I'm teaching high school English and I've got students who are in swimming and soccer and volleyball and they all have this kind of intensity but the reason that I chose hockey is that in Minnesota it's known as the state of hockey we have like the most NHL players in any other state and um, it's just really pervasive here and people understand it it's also a sport that I think has a little bit of an extra intensity to it because if you don't start skating when you're like a toddler it's very very hard to become excellent at the sport so it has an extra layer of like you have to be a little bit more willing to be an intense sports parent because you have to start so young. Whereas if you're going to be excellent at like lacrosse or running, you can start that in late elementary or middle school and still be great. But it's not the case in hockey. So you've got these people that have been really investing a lot of time and money from the time that their kids have been like two, three and four years old. So since this is something that, you know, you've been kind of familiar with, like living, you know, in, in the Midwest and really seeing all of this, um, what was it like for you to kind of make sure that you brought it to life enough, but also fictionalized it, you know, so that you're not putting like situations that perhaps you, you experienced, you know, personally into the story? 
Yeah, this book, I actually had to do a lot more research than in my previous books um, because I I just don't know all the details about how this works. And obviously, I've never been an elite athlete like this. I didn't know. I had an idea about the intensity, but I didn't really know about the intensity. Um, and so I got to interview a couple of Olympians um and it's not like you find them all the time, but you can find, like, Olympic hockey players in Minnesota to interview, including this one woman who has, like, a bronze, a silver, and a gold from the 1990. I know. She won gold in 1998, silver in 2002, and bronze in 2006. And so talking to her about, like, this exact training camp. And in the book, one of the big conflicts is that Lee – um, feels that she has to sleep with her coach in order to have, like, the best chance to be on the team. Um, and she feels like she does this consensually and knowingly and, like, understanding the sacrifice that she's making. And she is, as a young person, kind of flattered by the attention. But, like, as readers and as a woman in my 40s, like, I could see that this was a really manipulative situation. And when I was interviewing my Olympic hockey players, I was a little bit embarrassed to tell them that this was like a plot plot line in the story. You know, like I didn't want them to think that I was writing this sort of salacious book. Oh. Um, but when I told them, I, I told them the plot points because I wanted to ask about how this affair could have been conducted. And they were they were both like, oh, yep, absolutely, that happened and that can happen. And then talking to more athletes in other sports and just looking in the news, like we've seen similar stories in soccer in the past year, and I've heard about them in a lot of other arenas. And and I think, um, I mean, for worse, definitely, but, like, this is one of the big dangers with women in elite sports is being manipulated and taken advantage of by men in power. So um, I was interested in that but also wanting to make sure that that was uh, fictionalized. In terms of, like, the youth hockey, I am a hockey mom, my 13-year-old, plays pretty high-level hockey. Um, So I knew the world, but I didn't know, like, I'm not a hockey expert in terms of the game. So I had a lot of fun interviewing, like, other experts on play and and coaches, youth coaches, to ask them, when you're coaching a nine-year-old, like, how much are you thinking about their strengths and weaknesses now? How much do you know how good they're going to be in the future? And how responsible do you feel for their wins and losses? Like, all these things that I didn't really know about. So it became pretty easy to fictionalize. Partly because I just don't, I don't know the ends of the world. Like I'm not in the room when the cuts are made on for the A team, but I got to interview people that are. So I think it's very close to reality. But as far as I know, I haven't written anyone's real story. <laughs> probably good. Yeah. <laughs> that is probably very, very good. I think so. Yeah. So you talked about you know having to do more research. Um, in this in this book and that makes a lot of sense given you know what you've said about the the world of hockey um but you also made a little bit of a departure in terms of like it's not only women and children who are point of view characters in this book um here we actually get to see things um from the perspective of lee's husband so i'm wondering how that was for you to you know kind of make him a point of view character um, was it something that you found difficult or easier than you thought it would be? Yeah, I had a lot of fun writing Charlie. And when I started the book, I did want to, I was interested in expanding my reach as an author, like writing a book that might appeal to um, a wider audience and also just looking at trying new things as a writer, trying to grow as a writer. So there is a departure in terms of Charlie's point of view. And and then also the book, I think, is just 
more serious in tone. And I was kind of concerned about that in the beginning. Like I, I remember talking to my agent, I'm like, it's just not as funny, but there's just nothing funny about sexual harassment. <laughs> so right. I couldn't, you know, um, and I, I felt really good about that. Like I felt like it was a story with some weight that I was excited to tell. And in terms of Charlie's point of view, I was also really interested in exploring those tensions in marriage in terms of um, distribution of labor. And Lee and Charlie's marriage, Lee is the breadwinner for the family. Like she makes the money. They've made all of their decisions based on her career in terms of where they move and what houses they buy. And and Charlie's always been the secondary wage earner. And um, And so there are times when he feels like, maybe his point of view or his interests or whatever are less than because of the financial realities of their relationship. And I liked exploring that because so many of my friends have experienced, you know, the reverse, like they, as the woman in a, in a heterosexual marriage, like they are the one who earns less money or is, is uh, assumed to be doing the majority of the childcare. So I was just interested in looking at that. Um, in terms of his voice, it came pretty easily to me. I felt like I got a good sense of who he was. And I also had a lot of fun writing Gus, their nine-year-old son. Oh, I he, love him. I've had kids in each of my books, but they've gotten progressively younger. So the the point of view characters in minor dramas were teenagers, and then they were middle schoolers in Are We There Yet? And now we have Gus, who's nine. So that was actually a little bit more of a challenge, but a really fun challenge. And he's just such a cool character. Like, I'm not a big kid person in real life. Um, but there are just certain kids in books that I love. And <laughs> Gus was one of them. Um, you know, I loved how how serious he was about his sport, but in a way that still made him feel you know, like like a child. Like, I didn't read this and say, oh, you know, this is like an adult in a in a kid body. Yeah, he's not particularly precocious. Like, he's wonderful. Um, and I like kids in books, too, but I, I tend to be a little bit annoyed by that, like, Scout Finch trope, like the extremely gifted child. Um, I think there's so many interesting – I mean, every kid – as a teacher, I really don't like giftedness as a, like, a um, – as a like a way of talking about people because I feel like everybody has these excellent strengths and, and real weaknesses. And um, I like exploring like the whole person. So having just a regular kid was really interesting to me. And I just really like to look at how kids view their parents and the adults in their lives. That's something I like to explore in my writing. So it was really fun to do that with Gus. So shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious to know, like you, you're teaching school and you're also writing. Um, do your two worlds kind of collide? Like do your, do your students know yeah. that you've published books? and? Yes, they do collide. And becoming a writer, like getting published as a writer has really enhanced my teaching in a lot of ways because I feel like it gives me a lot of authenticity as a writing teacher. Like I can say it's not just theoretical, like I can say this as a real life writer, this is what I do. This is how I work with my editor, who is kind of like my teacher. Um, or this is how I work with my critique partners. This is how we do peer editing. So all of that stuff, um, it just comes alive, I think, for me and my students because I'm actually working in the field um, and talking about different sentence structures or different ways of describing dialogue. All of that is really fun to talk about. And 
Yeah, I just like living in the world of books. You know, I've always liked that. I always wanted to be an English teacher. I've taught a lot of lever- levels of kids. I've taught anything from third grade through senior year. So um, a lot of different levels. But I, I feel like having a job like being a novelist just brings a lot of depth to my work in the classroom. Speaking of the classroom, are you completely back in person now from COVID? Yeah. We are. I was, so I did take one full year off of teaching the year in like 2019, 2020. So that was the year that we all shut down in March. So I was out of teaching that whole year. Um, and I really missed it. And I missed it, especially during the COVID shutdown, which sounds bizarre, but I realized that teaching has really helped me in my life in terms of dealing with crises because as a teacher, you have to be the responsible adult in the classroom and make kids feel like the world world isn't ending. And you have to have like a certain optimism and um, pragmatism about your life. So it helps me function. <laughs> so the following year, I went back to school and I taught. Um, so the fall of 2020, we were in person, but in like a hybrid model. Um, I taught half of my students every day in person. And now this year, I'm in a, a job and we are in person every day. Um, I'm very lucky in the school that I'm in now and that we have a very large building and very large grounds. So there's flexibility in terms of spreading out, which is awesome. So then are you finding that people are still like missing school because of COVID? I know that um, earlier on in the pandemic, people were saying, you know, that they would never know like how many kids they would have in in class on any given day because of either like testing positive or being exposed. Yeah, it's it got a lot better after the vaccines became available for teenagers. So mm-hmm. once the because once the vaccines are available for teenagers, um, then if you were fully vaccinated, you didn't kids no longer had to quarantine if they were close contacts. So before that point, it was kind of a disaster. Like you could I could be in a classroom with 15 kids and one kid could test positive and then everyone is a close contact and we all have to be out of school. But now with vaccination, like if everyone was vaccinated, then they wouldn't have to isolate um, after being a close contact. And we all wore masks um, full time until very recently. Um, now it's mask optional. Uh, so what are you seeing as far as masks? Like are people still masking or have people kind of it's gotten totally away from that? It. I so it's gotten less and less. And right now in Minnesota, we're really lucky in that our case, our caseloads, our number of new cases is as low as it has been during the pandemic. So in Minnesota right now, the the situation is such that I think more people are willing to go without their masks. But even just like a week or two ago, masking was much more prevalent. One thing I've noticed mm-hmm. as a teacher is that I... I'm having more robust discussions with a lot more students without their masks on because I can see their reactions. I got pretty good at reading their eyes, but now that I can see their whole face, I often see when an idea has dawned on them or they've made a connection or they got interested in something. So I'm able to like call on people and bring them out in ways that I wasn't able to do during our two years of masking. So for the moment with the low case numbers, I'm very happy to have students comfortable enough not to be wearing their masks. And I know that I am, that that's just one perspective. Many teachers would probably everyone is wearing their mask, but. Yeah. I mean, for myself personally, you know, I still mask when, when we go out, Um, my partner does as well. 
Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, it just feels like you have that kind of extra layer of, of protection. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So I, I haven't been just in the last couple of weeks, but that could easily change. Like I'm, I'm expecting that we'll get that second Omicron wave that people are starting to see. And then my masks are ready and I'll put them right back on. (laughs) Ah, yes. Yes. Watch the sub variant. Yes. So before we started recording, you told me something very sad. Oh, I did. <laughs> I was like, what did I say? <laughs> yes, now I know. <laughs> yes, very sad. So you, you know, normally I ask um, what people are, are working on and, and what readers can expect next. Um, but I'm guessing that you're not ready to talk much about that since you're you know, just kind of in the early stages of of forming your idea? Well, I'll talk a little bit about it because it's kind of interesting, like, how this works. I had had it in mind, and I probably told you last year that I was interested in writing a murder mystery. Um, So I spent a year, yeah, I spent a year developing some ideas for murder mysteries, and I still like those ideas, but my publisher and I have decided that those are not going to be the next projects. So we're putting those aside, but... I have not given up on the nun murder that I started. <laughs> so someday that I am, murder is coming out. <laughs> I am here for a murderous nun. Yes. Um. But in the meantime, we've, we're just in the process of developing a different idea about like mistaken identities and con artists and also maybe murder, but maybe a little lighter than the blood, guts, and gore that I had planned. So I have nothing concrete to say about it, except that I am writing another book. It is contracted by my same publisher. It's just going to take me a little longer. Hmm. I know. I, I'll let you know. I, I was hoping for March 2023, but it, it's okay. Okay. Thank you, Shannon. <laughs> I will. I will survive. <laughs> oh, good. Me too. I hope. Yes. Yes. I hope so too, because if, if you don't survive, um, you know, the rest of us have a problem. <laughs> Well, I pre- I'm pretty sure I will, and I'm excited to to get going, you know, to really get on into this next idea, and I feel like it could be another fun um, departure for me. I've really enjoyed growing through the process of publishing these novels, and I I think each one is better than the last, and that's my plan for book four, too. So we'll see what I can do. I think of the three you've written, I have loved them all, but I think Minor Dramas remains my favorite. Fair enough. So have you read anything lately? And I'm guessing this is hard because you're you're reading your books like with your students. Um, but have you read anything lately that you think the world should know about? You know, I have read a couple of really good things lately. I I listened to the Will Smith autobiography. Um, it's oh. called Will. Yeah. And I listened to it because my one of my friends who's a great reader and audiobook listener recommended it to me. And it was fantastic. Will Smith is the narrator himself. And he, you know, breaks into song and performs and does like impressions. And I was really into that book. So and I'm not like a Will Smith, like super fan or anything. I just really loved the book. Um, I liked hearing the behind the scenes. And he also was pretty inspiring about his life and his you know, um, evolving philosophy on how he parents and engages in relationship with people. I loved it. So that was fantastic. Um, right now I'm reading The Christie Affair, 
Uh, I'm really liking that book a lot. And I just finished the book of cold cases by Simone St. James. And I just tore through that. She is like one of those writers that I just whip through the book. I can't put it down and I stay up too late reading. So that was great. And then I also recently read um, Stephanie Robel's new book, This Might Hurt. Yes. yes. So fantastic. That is, the writing was so good. The plotting was so good. And she's just a master. So it was fantastic. Have you read her first one, Darling Rose Gold? Yes. Yeah. The voice. Yeah, I, she's I, just like a, like in terms of being a stylist, like a writer's writer, I feel like Steph is excellent. She is very, very talented. I have to congratulate you on having Cassandra Campbell as your audiobook narrator. Um, you made me think of it when you were talking about Will Smith narrating his autobiography. And Cassandra Campbell has long been one of my favorites. Um, so I was really happy to see. Yeah, I thrilled. I love that. And I've actually gotten so lucky on each of my audiobooks. I had Julia Whalen for minor dramas. Yes. Yes, yes you did. I had Therese Plummer for Are We There Yet? And it was fantastic. And now I have Cassandra Campbell. So all of them. And I'm such a big audiobook listener that, you know, that means a lot to me. So I'm thrilled, too. So thanks for noticing. Yes, it was. Um, the audio is my advanced copy oh, good. Um, for um, for this interview. So when I read the book last week, um, I was really happy to see. Uh, I haven't heard it, so it turned out well. Oh, it's so good. Oh, good. It's so good. Like there, you know, the the way that she brings it to life, um, I feel like is just is just perfect. It's definitely on par with like your other two in terms of you know the narrator being um, very skilled and and professional. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. I think the audiobook narrators. I always listen because sometimes they they bring out something different than I intended as a writer. And it's so fascinating because obviously they're reading the words that I put there, but the way that they bring the characters to life or the way that they present something or even the tone, I notice new things. So I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, she is. She is so, so good. Good. You have had different narrators, as you say, for each of your books. Um, When you originally like wrote your second one, were you thinking of, like branching out to different narrators on purpose or did it just sort of happen that way that like you couldn't you know get the same person? Yeah, it just happened that way. Actually, they, um, they, Julia wasn't available and she's so lovely. She blurbed, are we there yet? And I'm a huge fan of her writing. She has a new book coming out. I'm so excited about that. Yes, she does. Um, so I had hoped and, and, and thought maybe we could get her again, but she wasn't available. And so then the, producers at Penguin Random House, they send you some, um, you know, snippets of other narrators. And I had heard them because I listened to a lot of audiobooks. And both Therese and Cassandra were on the list of potential narrators for book two. And I loved them both. So I said, we know however it works out. And so this time when we came again, they were like, do you want us to try to get Cassandra this time since we didn't get her last time? And I was like, oh, sure. Great. So it just that just happened. There are so many super talented audiobook narrators out there. I know. It's a real so happy. Yeah, me too. Some people ask me, like, would you ever read your own book? I'm like, oh no, I cannot do that. I'm like not skilled for that. There are some writers like Laura Hinkin, she reads her own and she's yes, but she's she an actor, so that she can do that. And my friend Nicole Kronzer, she's a YA author, she reads her own, but she's also an actor. So um I'm not. Jocelyn Jackson. Um who writes like what I is the kind of set in the south? 
she, I think, is like a master of writing and of of narrating not only her own books now, but like sometimes some other people's. Oh, I should check and, that out. I've read her oh, most recent on paper, so I didn't even realize. I think all the way back, like her first book, I don't think she read. But after that, I think she's read all of them. Okay. Um, and then she's done um, some Mary Beth Mayhew Whalen um, and a few other things. Like she doesn't read a ton, but when she does, um, it's pretty stellar. Okay. I'm going to check that out. Thanks for that recommendation. You're welcome. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your pre-release schedule to chat with me and kind of catch us up on your work and, you know, how how it was for you to write Home or Away. Can you remind us the best place to find you online? Yes. Um, well, I want to thank you for having me. I always look forward to, to talking with you, um, and I think you're such a good reader, so I'm thrilled to be here. My Instagram is at KathleenWestWrites, and my Twitter is at KWestBooks. And my students have been tutoring me in TikTok. So oh. I don't even know what my TikTok username is. But if you go to my Instagram, you can see my most recent TikToks, which is kind of exciting for me. <laughs> I don't understand TikTok. Like I know, but my the, brain. the kids understand it. And so they have been helpful. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> Again, this has been a discussion with author Kathleen West about her latest novel, Home or Away, which is releasing in the U.S. Um, at the time of this recording in less than a week. It will be out on March 29th. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, it is time to talk about new books, and I am very, very excited for a bunch of these that are coming out this week. Um, this is such a great release week. I say that a lot. Um, I can't help it, though. There are always so many great books coming out. So I'm going to start with some books you've heard us mention before. Um, first up is the new Kelly Armstrong. Stacy mentioned this on our most anticipated releases of May episode. This is A Rip Through Time. It is the first book in a new series, a time travel series. I'm looking forward to it. Stacy's looking forward to it. Natalia and Brooke are also looking forward to it. We then have one of my most anticipated releases, which is A Caribbean Heiress in Paris, Las Leonas, book one by Adriana Herrera. I'm so excited to see her doing a historical. Um, I've loved her contemporaries, so I'm excited for a historical, especially one set in Paris in like the 1890s. Kristen has a couple books that she's looking forward to. We have Together We Burn. This is a standalone YA fantasy from Isabel Ibanez. And we have A Little Bit Country, which is a contemporary YA by Brian D. Kennedy. And Georgina also has a couple books that she's looking forward to. We have The Seamstress of New Orleans. This is historical fiction by Diane C. McPhail. And one of my very favorite titles um, this week is Improbable, Improbable Magic for Cynical Witches by Kate Selska. 
Um, this is a YA witchy fiction, and I am so excited for this one. Um, there's another witchy book out this week that I will uh, mention in just a little while. So those are some books that you've heard us talk about before. And as always, I'm going to move on into books we haven't previously discussed. I'm going to start with some young adult contemporaries. Um, we have, I guess they're not all contemporary. We have some, a couple of kind of historical ones as well. But we've got some YA here. We have Rivals. This is American Royals, book three by Catherine McGee. This is a series that Christi uh, Kristen likes. And I have also enjoyed some of McGee's other books. Um, I've not read this series, although I want to. It kind of plays with the concept of America actually having a royal family instead of like an, an elected president. So this is the third book in that series. It's called Rivals. Again, it's American Royals, book three by Catherine McGee. We then have Murder for the Modern Girl by Kendall Culper. I pre-ordered this. It should be appearing in my library anytime now. It is set in the 1920s. It's got some mystery, some magic, some shape-shifting, um, maybe some romance. I don't know, but it just looks like it's going to be tons of fun. Um, I think it's set in Chicago in the 1920s, so I am very excited to give this one a try. It's Murder for the Modern Girl by Ken... Kendall Culper. We also have The Museum of Broken Things. This is by Lauren Draper. It's about a teenage girl who has just moved to a small beach town. It's not what she wants for her life. She misses the big city. But then she inherits some kind of artifact from her grandmother who has recently passed away. And through this artifact, a lot of things change for her. So I'm not sure if we get to do like a dual timeline thing where we learn some things about her grandmother or how this will play out, but it does look very cool. It is The Museum of Broken Things by Lauren Draper. We also have an MM romance. This is Love Radio by Ebony Liddell. It is the story of a young man who hands out advice about love on this like uh, radio show. And the thing is, he doesn't have a lot of experience with love. And then he meets who might be the boy of his dreams. This is Love Radio, and it's by Ebony Liddell. Next up, we have Flip the Script by Lila Lee. I fell in love super fast, super hard with Lee's debut in 2020, um, and that was I'll Be the One. So this is her second book, and it is about a teenage girl who is on a K-drama. And kind of what happens when on-set rivalries kind of merge into her real life. This is Flip the Script. And it's by Lila Lee. Next up, we have Summer's Edge. This is by Dana Millay. And this is billed as I Know What You Did Last Summer meets The Haunting of Hill House. 
It is probably not a book I will read since I'm not a ghost person, but it's about a group of friends who is being, they're being haunted by the ghost of one of their number who died um, the previous summer. So if you're looking for something creepy, maybe not for now, but you know, as we get closer into the fall, um, this might be a good pick for you. It's Summer's Edge and it's by Dana Millay. All right, let's move on to some fantasy. This is both um, adult and young adult fantasy here. I'm starting with Shadowlands. This is Savage Lands Book 6 by Stacey Marie Brown. This is an author who has intrigued me for quite a while. She's written quite a few books. Most of them have to do with the Fae. Um, some of them are more kind of like paranormal romance. Some straddle that line between PNR and urban fantasy. Um, I think I own almost all of her books. Um, one day I will pick them up. Um, so if you are you know, more current with her stuff than I am, which wouldn't be hard since I haven't read any, um, you might be looking forward to this one. It is, like I said, Shadowlands, Savage Lands, Book 6 by Stacey Marie Brown. We have next, remember I said there was another witchy book out this week, and I'm going to tell you about it now. This is Her Majesty's Royal Coven. It's the first book in a new series with the same title, and it's by Juno Dawson. So this book operates under the premise that Queen Elizabeth I established a royal coven. And ever since, there have been series of witches kind of inducted into this coven. Well, now there has been a civil war in the witch world, and this coven is kind of being torn apart. And so we follow four women um, who were part of this coven, and some of them still are. Some of them have stepped back. Um, this just looks like so much fun. Everything that you love about witches. It is compared to um, the craft meets a discovery of witches is kind of like what they're, they're billing it as. So it is Her Majesty's Royal Coven, Her Majesty's Royal Coven, book one, and it's by Juno Dawson. We also have A Game of Retribution. This is book two in the Hades Saga by Scarlet St. Clair. I really like mythology retellings, and that's what this looks like. Um, you know, the, the myth of Hades and Persephone is pretty popular, and I'm always happy to see kind of new takes on that because I think a lot of um, modern readers don't know about mythology, at least as much as, as they might want to. So I love these kind of modern takes on this. And that this is the second book. So again, it is A Game of Retribution, Hades Saga, book two, by Scarlet St. Clair. We have Chasing Midlife Demons. This is Adept at 50, book one by Heloise Hall. This looks kind of like paranormal women's fiction to me. So kind of urban fantasy with heroines over the age of 40. Um, our heroine here is 50. She is living in a small French village and it turns out that demons are terrorizing this village. That's not good, but it does make a good book. This is Chasing Midlife Demons, 
and it is Adept at 50, book one by Heloise Hall. We also have The Fae Keeper. This is The Witch King, book two by H.E. Edgman. I love, 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 love The Witch King. Um, so The Fae Keeper is the follow-up. I think it is the end of this it's a duology, and I cannot wait to see how this book ends. Um, it is a kind of witchy book, but I feel like it delves more into the Fae um, with some kind of witch magic thrown in. There is a phenomenal um, trans main character, lots of great world building, a really stellar romance. Um, if you have not picked up The Witch King, please do. And now you can have The Fae Keeper as well. So this is The Fae Keeper, Witch King, book two by H.E. Edgman. We also have a couple of women's fiction, kind of um, not quite romance, but more women's fiction. We have Meant to Be by Emily Giffen. Um, Natalia is a big Emily Giffen fan, and I have loved a few of her books as well. This one is kind of a star-crossed lover's story. Um, I am pretty excited about it. It is meant to be, and it's by Emily Giffen. We then have The Wedding Dress Sewing Circle by Jennifer Ryan. And Jennifer Ryan writes these really cool, like, Western-based romances, but then she also writes some women's fiction with romantic elements. So kind of like Susan Wiggs um, has done, you know, some, like, straight-up romances and then also some women's fiction. That's kind of what I think of when I think of Jennifer Ryan. Um, this is, of course, about a sewing circle. And it looks like it's going to have a lot of heart, strong female friendships, some romance, um, perhaps some tears. It's The Wedding Dress Sewing Circle, and it is by Jennifer Ryan. We also have The Messy Lives of Book People, and this one is one that I wasn't super aware of until pretty recently. This is by Phaedra Patrick, and it is about a woman who is the house cleaner for a famous author. And when that author dies, our house cleaner is tasked with carrying out her last wish. And I don't know what that last wish is, but um, it looks like it could be a lot of fun. So this is The Messy Lives of Book People, and it's by Phaedra Patrick. I also want to mention the new historical romance by Kerrigan Byrne. This is The Earl on the Train. It is a novella um, in her Victorian Rebel series. I have to say I haven't been a super big fan of some of the titles for her, um, some of her books in this series. I feel like they're kind of takes on like some of the more popular thrillers, like The Earl on the Train, obviously reminds me of The Girl on the Train. We also have um, The Duke with the Dragon Tattoo, which, of course, you know, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But um, Kerrigan Byrne does write some really great historical romances. They're pretty dark and gritty with a lot of anti-heroes, very complicated relationships between the characters. Um, I was a little bit sad to see that this was a novella, 
rather than a full-length novel. Um, but if you are a fan of Burns writing, you will probably want to pick this one up. So it is The Earl on the Train, and it's Victorian Rebels 7.5 by Kerrigan Byrne. And that looks like it's all I have for you this week. I hope that you, um, if you're in the U.S., that you had a safe and happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope that all of you are finding lots of great books to read and building up your TBR, as all of the book beastresses do, on a pretty regular basis. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.